The spin is supported by NatWest. Why? Because NatWest loves cricket. The skills it teaches and the communities it creates, and want it to be easy for everyone to get involved. To find out about how NatWest is helping make cricket open to all, search NatWest Cricket. I've been in Liverpool at the Netball World Cup all this week because when your favourite sport isn't on, the editor does insist on sending you to cover other things too. It was a great tournament, not least because after England went out at the semi-final stage, I could exercise all my guilt from the previous weekend by throwing my support behind New Zealand. And we won! At least I was so busy at the Netball that my World Cup come down didn't really have a chance to overwhelm me. How's yours going, by the way? helping us through this tricky transition. Andy Zaltzman is a comedian who loves cricket, so much so that he's been welcomed into the Test Match Special Box as their scorer, and I'm told his score sheets are a thing of beauty. We've got former England batsman turned musician and Ashes legend Mark Butcher. And our big money transfer from Football Weekly, Barry Glendenning, is with us. Although we might actually struggle to keep him on the cricket and off the golf today because someone from his hometown just won the Open. Oh, and by the way, my fingernails have finally grown back. It's the spin! Australia have retained the ashes. Elise Perry ruined England's chance of the perfect cricketing summer in the women's test at Taunton. Can the men do any better? Plus, it's been a crazy week as Ben Stokes gets nominated for New Zealander of the Year. Hands off, Kiwis. He's ours. It's the spin! I'm Emma John and this is The Spin, the cricket podcast that's bought ourselves a framed photo of Joss Butler to celebrate our one-week anniversary with the World Cup. We're awarding three new caps today's episode. Sitting around the boundary of our oval table, we have Statsman Andy Zaltzman, the real cricketarist Mark Butcher and Barry Glendenning. No, we're not sure why he's on a cricket show either. I'm at my usual position in Cow Corner and Mike Castleton is still here in spirit. For newcomers to the podcast, there's a photo of my cricketing hero, Athers, reserving a microphone for him in case he's ever free to join us. Mark Butcher has 71 test matches under his belt and 4,000 runs. Barry Glendenning, what's your cricket CV? I have played one cricket match in my entire life for Ballyegan Juniors against Ballyegan Ladies. I took two catches in the field and scored no runs. I have attended five cricket matches in my life. Best of all, I have uh, faced eight balls from the time we were listening in the nets at Trent Bridge, and he didn't get me out. <laughs> How did you manage that one? Him and Swanee, Graham Swan, were promoting some fruit juice or other, so I was sent to interview them and to get a kind of a bowling, batting masterclass. With my first attempt at a delivery, I almost hit the cameraman in the face. <laughs> so Swanee said, maybe maybe you're a batsman. <laughs> and uh, anyway, yeah, I uh, faced eight or nine deliveries from, from Murali and he didn't get me out. Well, that's quite an achievement, Barry. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm the most <laughs> yeah, qualified I, I, person here. I think you are. I reckon the <laughs> first time I faced Murali was a test match. Against Sri Lanka in '98, I think I think I might have lasted 12 balls, maybe not quite as many as that. <laughs> so I might be a four deliveries better than you. <laughs> Do I have to go through every single game of cricket? <laughs> Andy, as the Test match special scorer, I think your place around this. 
table is not in doubt. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> We're currently in the six-hour gap between the end of one football season and the start of the next. That's why Barry has been released to us. <laughs> so we thought that to kick off today's podcast, you should each give me one reason why cricket is better than football. One? How, how on earth am I going to narrow that down from infinity to one? <laughs> What would be your top one? Well, it would be that it's better in every single possible conceivable way. I mean, do I need to flesh that out? <laughs> I don't know. I'm waiting for Barry to come back at you. Oh, I, I totally agree with him. <laughs> <laughs> and we saw, you know, in, in, the, in the World Cup final, not a particularly high-scoring game, but still 500 runs in a day. Quite low scoring for a one-day match. Football, three goals, everyone goes nuts. <laughs> that, makes, that makes cricket at least 160 times better than football. <laughs> Um, Statistically. The st- yeah, the statistician has spoken. Uh, you can drink at cricket matches, you can't mm. drink at football matches. I would say that's a major... Uh, there's no crowd segregation that I'm aware of. Um, you separate the members from the non-members, so that, you know, there oh, is a little the bit. the members from the riffraff. <laughs> yeah. um, well, there's a good reason for that. You know, the members tend to be a, a, a lot more aggressive than the, uh, than, the, than the riffraff. Mark, what about you? Do you think you've got a compelling reason why uh, cricket is I, better I'm than football? Wrong, I played it for a living. We tend to have a much dimmer view of the of the sports that we play. But I tell you what, though, the fact that you can, can drink for most of the day is, is absolutely a bonus. Um, and generally speaking, it's not, you know, you can feel your feet at the end of the cricket. Whereas um, I went down to Sellers Park to see my beloved Crystal Palace play um, Huddersfield, I think it was last year, and was frozen solid after about 15 <laughs> minutes and not enjoying myself at all. Sellers Park is a weird place. It's, it, it's the coldest I have ever been in my life was at Crystal Palace against Bolton. It had been snowing the night before and Sellers Park doesn't have undersoil heating. So I had assumed the game would be cancelled and uh, went out accordingly. Uh, New Year's Eve big night and uh, the next day I, I discovered to my horror that they'd got volunteers in to clear the snow off the pitch and the game was very much on and I went forgot my gloves and hat and the press box in Sellers Park at the time was a very grim and, and desolate place very exposed to the elements and it was utter misery but yeah I could not feel my feet or fingers on the way out I mean, fundamentally, why cricket is better than football is uh, it's a game of infinite narrative possibility, which I don't think football is. There, that's my answer. But also, if if you're a football fan and you're thinking, why should I bother with cricket? Cricket can also be intensely tedious, plutocratic and irritatingly rife with cheating. So it's got everything that's made football the most popular game in the world. (laughs) So come join us at the Ireland-England Test Match. Um, It's a historic week. Although, honestly, I'm pretty used to those now. As Ireland prepare to play their first ever test match against England at Lords, this is a huge deal for Irish cricket after the disappointment of missing out on a place at the World Cup. How significant do you feel it is, Barry? Um, I've kind of mixed feelings about it. It is obviously significant. It's, it's a huge honour to be playing England at Lords. I'm not sure if Ireland's players, Mark, would have a better idea whether they'll be intimidated by the prospect of playing there or whether it will give them added superpowers, you know, sometimes like the the yellow jersey does for a rider in the Tour de France. But while it is an honour, I'm really looking forward to it. It'll be my sixth match. (laughs) I'm, I'm going on Wednesday with a couple of pals. As for what kind of significance it will have in Ireland, it's hard to know. It'll probably be the last item on the news because it's the novelty. Ireland, because of the weather, it's it's going to be hard for Ireland to host test matches because getting five days without rain in Ireland is <laughs> practically impossible at any time of year. 
I'm not sure how much public interest there will be in it. The whole country would have been on a high today because of Shane Lowry's heroics at the Open over the weekend. A lot of people won't even know that they're playing at Lords. Let, let, let's try and make sure that they do. I mean, listen, I, I, I t- <laughs> yeah. kind of I, to try and give it a, a little bit more of a boost and a little bit more of a, a sort of enthusiasm about it, I guess. Um, it's an incredible feat, I think, for Irish cricket to have got test match status. I'm a little bit concerned that they probably didn't need it. It's probably going to harm them in the long run more than it helps them. But for now, there's an awful lot of people behind the scenes um, over many, many years that have put their sort of their lives into this day, the day that, that Ireland becomes sort of legitimate as a, as a test match nation, playing at Lords against England. Um, and therefore, it, it's, a, it's a huge celebration and a great sort of tribute to all of their, their efforts. And you hope, I, I, I doubt that the players will, will struggle too much on that score because most, you know, half of them play for Middlesex, for goodness sake, you know, Paul Sterling and... Uh, and, uh, and Tim Murta um, and a lot of them have played a lot of county cricket um, and so therefore Lords is not alien to them representing their country at Lords is a different thing and you never know quite how that's going to make you react um, on the inside um, so you know I, th- I think it's a wonderful occasion I hope it's a good game you know England could do without it honestly with the, you know, the World Cup having just finished and the, and the ashes just around the corner it's kind of it's one of those it's a banana skin potentially you know what I would have liked if I was Joe Root I'd like just give me my best team let's try and do this in two and a half days and get ourselves onto the ashes which isn't again it's not that's not being um, disrespectful of Ireland it's just the reality of what is coming over the next two months well uh, Athens wrote last week that all of the World Cup winners should have been given the week off because he argued that clarity of mind was more important than time in the middle. Mm. Do you not think that the players really need a break yeah, right I, now? I'm not talking about it from the point of view of, of them needing time in the middle. I'm, I'm talking about it from the point of view of the pressure all of a sudden that they're under because you go in there expecting to beat Ireland. You go in as that there's the team that should win. You know, what, we really can't afford to mess this up. Some guys have been making test match debuts. There's no pressure on Ireland whatsoever. They're expected to lose and get beaten. However, we know from watching Irish cricket, they very nearly turned over Pakistan in their first test match. If they get conditions that are handy and they get the, the right side of a toss, they could very easily give England a bloody nose before the ashes. And in that score, that's why England don't need it. It's an interesting game for England because they are vulnerable, clearly. We've seen teams come to England having won a home World Cup twice this decade, India in 2011, Australia in 2015. The slight difference is that they had quite a big gap and I think they both had a bit of an emotional and physical come down after that. India were terrible in 2011. The guys that did well for them in that series were, were Dravid and Pravin Kumar, medium pace bowl. Neither of them had played in the World Cup. Australia came here, played not particularly well for most of that 2015 Ashes series. But the shortness of gap for England might actually work in their favour. That They can sort of surf the wave of euphoria rather than have a you know a couple of months to let it all sink in and struggle to motivate themselves Tim Murphy you mentioned I think you know just looking at his stats at Lords 291 first class wickets average mm. 23.9 and you he's, know, he's exactly the sort of bowler that the England lads will hate to face as well yeah there's no pace yeah and I don't know <laughs> as, a, as a test batsman yeah. Bush, did you did you find that that type of bowling that you're almost not so used to facing could be more difficult um it, Having more time to think quite often wasn't very good for me, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, that, but the reason Tim Murdoch he's just passed 800 first-class wickets, I think. Tim, um, uh, he was a teammate of mine at the Oval um, in his uh, his early days, and he's just a brilliant line and length bowler. 
gives absolutely nothing away. If the ball moves at all, he will find it. And because of that sort of slight lack of the ball arriving at you, he makes it, because of the fact that he's so accurate, he makes it very difficult for you to kind of force the ball into gaps. You know, gullies in play, silly mid-off, short extra covers in play, short mid-wicket, all of these sort of fielding positions where, whereby with faster bowlers, they'd all be behind you. They're all in front of you. And, um, you know, he can make life very, very tricky for anybody. There's quite a few of the Ireland players who were in that team in the 2011 World Cup that were responsible for beating England with the highest run chase in history as well. Mm. So in a number of those... History. Kevin well, O'Brien. In World Cup history, yes. Yeah. yeah. Kevin O'Brien. Kevin O'Brien got a big knock in that game. Mm. Yeah. William Porterfield and Paul Sterling were both in that team. They're in a, a strange phase at the moment, Ireland, in that they're sort of between the team that was good enough to get them elevated to test status mm. without having evolved into the next generation. A bit like when Italy got into the Six Nations in rugby. They'd had a really <laughs> strong team and they were all slightly towards the end when they got into the Six Nations. And we've seen with Ireland, Niall O'Brien's retired. Ed Joyce is one of the best first-class batsmen statistically in the last 20 years in England, played just the one testing and then, mm. and then retired. So they're in a slightly between generations as a team. And, and that sort of goes back to what I was saying about it being, you know, it, it could be a really bad thing for Irish cricket for them to have got test status because... All of a sudden, their players are now classes overseas players. So all these guys, such as Tim Murtagh, and uh, although he had a bit of a loophole in making sure that he was Irish in the end with a grandmother, I think. So all of the guys who learnt their cricket playing as naturalised players in the county game, Sterling, Porterfield, pretty much all of them, really, that avenue will not be available to them anymore. And they've only got, what, I think four first-class teams in Ireland in order to try and produce enough cricketers to sustain being a test match nation. That's unbelievably hard, particularly in a country where, as Barry says, you know, the kind of the interest is there, but it's very, very small. Yeah, um, cricket is not played in most schools in Ireland. A lot of towns don't have clubs. And you're competing with hurling, Gaelic football, soccer, or, you know, or proper football, and rugby for hearts and minds. And it worries me, actually, that there are so many of the players from that team in 2011 still playing for Ireland because it suggests that there just aren't people coming through and I don't know where those people are going to come from. Well, let's have a look at the England squad. Returning for England, Joe Root at captain, obviously, Moeen Ali, James Anderson, Johnny Bairstow, Stuart Broad, Chris Wokes, Rory Burns, Sam Curran and Joe Denley. And then some newer names in the squad, Lewis Gregory, Jack Leach, Jason Roy and Ollie Stone. There are some names there that some England fans won't be familiar with. Um, which of them do we think have any kind of chance of making it into the Ashes squad? I'm really excited to see Jason Roy in tests because England have have struggled to find the right balance at the top of the order, certainly since Strauss retired, or arguably since Truscothic stopped opening for England, that we've not had a really nicely balanced opening partnership with you know sort of an attacking player and a more defensive player I mean we just don't know how he'll fare obviously he's he's got a decent red ball record but hasn't opened much clearly a prodigious talent probably the most important player in England's World Cup campaign yes Um, how do you think he'll as as an ex-test opener I, I think his spot eventually will be at number three I think that will be the best spot for him I see him as a Ricky Ponting type player 
going out there and imposing himself on a situation that has been set up by other people. Um, however, uh, England has a you know an issue in terms of the top three at the moment. It looks like that's the only spot that's available, so he'll take it, and I'm sure he will do fine. If people are going you know going to expect him all of a sudden to turn into to Boyks overnight, then that's not going to happen. But um, I think it's a it's a great pick. He's a he's a fabulously talented young lad. So uh, he he has as, as good a chance as anybody. And let's face it, we've had, we've seen guys who have apparently have had better defensive techniques opening the batting for England over the last six or seven years and not be able to score any runs doing that either. So perhaps he's the guy to unlock it by intimidating bowlers out of being able to sort of plop the ball in the same place time after time. And what I hope is that he doesn't play... When Alex Hales made a similar transition from a you know successful white ball player to a test opener, he... Almost seem to play too much within himself. Mm. You know, I don't know if that's just uh, the nature of the uh, game. Is it possible to sort of think, right, I'm going to fail six times out of nine, but I'm going to make the three? Yeah, work. I mean that's that's different. It's difficult in test matches because you kind of you're, you've got two jobs there really as a, as a test match opener. Obviously, score runs, score big runs, but you've also got the responsibility of kind of seeing the new new ball off a little bit and making life easier for the people coming behind you. I don't think you can throw caution to the wind absolutely and sort of go out there and say, well, that's the way I play and make 80 of 30 balls once every six times. You're not going to last very long if you do that. But I think that Jason's technique is a hell of a lot more solid than Alex Hales ever was. A hell of a lot more. Um, we saw it in the in the semi-final against Australia. He had three or four overs against Stark, swinging the ball and bowling quickly, and he was he was absolutely rock solid before he decided to to blast them to all parts. Before we move off this topic, Owen Morgan is expected to parade the trophy around the boundary. Um, this will be a proud moment for him too. Uh, it's been a busy week for English cricket's favourite Irishman. He's been signed to two different leagues, the Bangladesh Premier League and the Euro T20 Slam. But I've got to ask, surely we'll have missed a trick if at some stage during the Laws Test, one of the teams doesn't bring him on as a substitute fielder. <laughs> <laughs> um, both. Yeah, uh, it would be great. Um, one other thing, actually, Carl McDermott is the groundsman at Lords. He's a Dubliner, um, Agent McDermott, as he should be known for the next few days. <laughs> Things haven't got any better for England's women since we last discussed the Ashes. I don't know why I'm sugarcoating this. They've actually got much worse. England cannot win back the urn now. The score in the multi-format series is 8-2 with six points still to play for from the T20s. Any hope of regaining the Ashes vanished as Australia batted them into submission in Taunton, scoring 420 for eight declared in their first innings and 230 for seven in their second. England were 275 for nine declared in their innings. The game was drawn and whatever smugness we felt about the all-round thrashing England gave West Indies earlier in the summer is now feeling very shallow indeed. This test match, as the Ireland test match will be, was four days long. A fifth day might have given us a result. Was this a good advert for women's tests, do we think? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I have real reservations about test match cricket in the women's game for the simple reason that um, taking 10 wickets for a team is unbelievably difficult in the women's game. In a, in a game where there is no time pressure on the runs that you can score, bowling attacks find taking 20 wickets to win a match almost impossible. That for me is the essence of Test match cricket, and you kind of you remove that from the game. It does, it's, it's no longer a sport. You're waiting on declarations. You're waiting for a certain set of circumstances in the game to present themselves. The jury's still out for me on the girls playing more Test cricket. I can I'd make a suggestion as to how I think that you could change that situation, and that would be to have them play on a pitch that wasn't the same length as the boys play off. 
in order to just sharpen everything up a little bit, give the bowlers a bit more of a chance to sort of be able to, to remove people forcibly from the crease. So play off 20 yards instead of 22. or That, I think, would give the game a, a better chance. How it, you, you need to be careful, Mark, because people during the Women's Football World Cup were suggesting that... Uh, the goals should be made smaller mm. and they got in all sorts of trouble. Yeah, I know. I, I, I get that. I understand that. And I've had, you know, I've kind of, I've made this view known before. I mean, it's just an, an honest opinion. But I've never really heard a sort of decent reason as to why not. The fastest ball I think that was bowled over the course of the test match was 74 miles an hour. Now, at least Perry could bat in, in men's cricket probably. So could Sarah Taylor. So could a lot of the other the women's girls. The reactions and in terms of batting are no different but actually being able to physically get the ball from one end to another at a speed that will make those will test those reactions to the point where you can make an error or make 10 errors <laughs> becomes really really difficult if you think about that the difference between the fastest ball like that one of the girls I can't pronounce her name uh, Remnick or something playing, was it? They, yeah, Remnick. playing for Australia 74 miles an hour right that was the fastest that she that she managed to hit fastest throughout the, the course of the game and the fastest uh, job for Archer Bowden to work out was 95 miles per hour. That's an enormous, that's a world of difference in terms of reaction time. Although, to be fair, the Australians were taking wickets. Yeah, for and sure, but they didn't bowl England out. England, by the time they, they declared or whatever, they were, they were eight or nine down, yeah. England didn't bowl Australia out. They were eight down for 400 and whatever it was. Yeah. It can happen. I'm not saying it can't happen. Well, I'm and just there was also it, a lot of criticism of that wicket specifically, yeah, that it was not a good And pitch. again... If you're running up and bowling the ball, if I'm running up and bowling, right, on a deck at the Oval, say, at my pace, which was 74, 75 miles an hour, I'm not going to make the ball do the same as somebody hitting it at 85 miles an hour. It's very difficult to be critical of the sort of bounce and carry on a surface when the fastest thing that's hit it has been 74 miles an hour. And I'm a huge supporter of the women's game. I've worked on it all over the world. I think girls are fantastic players. I, do, I just think in the format that requires a little bit of force, um, in order to move the game along, that they're not giving themselves the best chance of making it as good as it possibly could be. How's about that? I'd agree with that. And in terms of well, in terms of the goals at women's football, I think it's men's football that's getting it wrong. They need to be bigger in men's football, <laughs> and smaller in women's football, and that's aside from the endemic tactical negativity. Um, in women's cricket, they already use a smaller ball and smaller boundaries. So the argument about having to keep the game the same doesn't really apply. And in terms of making it a great contest and a great spectacle I don't think women's test cricket as it's currently played provides that now there are other reasons clearly when you only play one game of long form mm -hmm. cricket every two years yeah. then you can't train the skills needed for it whether it's in terms of the sort of risk to reward in batting so you see a lot of very very defensive batting in women's test Thankfully, you get that in men's test as well but to have the skills to pace an innings when you don't play that type of cricket more than once every two years must be incredibly difficult for the for the players. Mm. Well, it's not proving difficult for Elise Perry, I'd argue. <laughs> no, uh, she scored 116 and 76 not out. She took three wickets for 43. She's uh, taken 12 wickets at 12.41 across the entire series, including that seven for 22 at Canterbury. So my yeah. question is, is she human or is she just <laughs> part god? She's a giant, isn't she, of the game? She is absolutely magnificent. She stands sort of head and shoulders above almost everybody else. 
she also plays football, doesn't she, for Australia? So she's a, she's a dual international. <laughs> and all the while that she's in the game, it's extremely watchable, for sure. Although it doesn't always seem strictly fair. <laughs> no, but then, but then that's sport, isn't it? Some people, Usain Bolt didn't make it particularly fair for other people, but people weren't talking about changing the regulations to stop him. There's a slight uphill slope. <laughs> yeah, in, in his, his lane. lane. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. Might make a difference. I would love to see like an experimental game played, as Butch said, off a 20-yard pitch, you know, to see how different it could be because what you never see really in in women's cricket is the elite batters stressed by speed Mm. and reaction time and I think that's a shame in terms of as a spectacle now you see when it's you know the one day games are competitive we saw in the World Cup some fantastic matches and you get that competition but in terms of the the sort of the the thrill of the cricket when you're not seeing the top batsmen stressed for reactions I think the game loses a lot Mark what will England be looking to get out of the remaining T20 games? Oh, they, well, they need to salvage a bit of pride, really. You know, they've, they've taken an absolute hammering in this series. And, of course, because they're you know, the full-time professional outfit now, there is people quite happy to sort of leap on them and give them a load of abuse for it. And so, therefore, they need to sort of go out there and get a win or two under their belt in this. I mean, Australia, for their point, will just think, well, we're the world champions in T20, we've just won back the Ashes. We've thrashed the sort of world champions in the 50-over side 3-0 as well. Let's try and get a clean sweep of the white ball stuff and just prove our dominance. But England are a better team than they've showed. They've really not batted very well in this series. That's been a, a major issue. One or two sort of technical faults that run right the way through the team as opposed to it just being one or two individuals has made life difficult for them. And we've got to find a way of getting on top of Elise Perry. Also, just in terms of you know, judging women's test cricket on you know, one game, imagine if the only men's test match for two years had been the Melbourne Test Christmas 2017, mm. which played on one of the dullest pitches in history of the Nagpur match on Cook's tour of uh, India in 2012-2013, the last test played in an absolute pudding terrible terrible cricket and people would have said oh what's the point of this also in terms of the ashes in the men's ashes of the last 17 series 11 have been decided with two test matches to spare so australia winning with an entire series of t20 games to spare it's just in the grand tradition of (laughs) predictable one-sided ashes series mark you said you noticed glitches in technique that are running through the team is Mm. is that an indictment of the coaching setup? Well, yeah. If you can point out a flaw, you can point out a flaw in anybody's technique. There's no such thing as a perfect one. In sort of one or two players who might be struggling, you'd kind of go, okay, well, that's, you know, they'll iron that out at some point. But the whole top order, pretty much, taking guard and sort of off stump and, and just standing in front of all three and asking to get knocked over, I just, I'd never seen that before, ever. So that looks like it's a message that's come from whoever's in charge of taking care of their batting. And I would suggest that it's a very bad call. Change it. Don't do it again. <laughs> good question, Barry. Well done. Oh, thank you, Emma. very good question. You seem very surprised. He does this for a living, you know. <laughs> Just trying to make you feel welcome. <laughs> on the last episode, we asked you to vote for your catch of the World Cup and we gave you a short list based on our panel's choices. Dan Norcross nominated Ravi Jadeja's full frontal dive to dismiss Jason Roy. Atif Nawaz suggested Quentin de Kock's Coley catch. Barrett Sundarason opted for Sheldon Cottrell nonchalantly tossing the ball to himself as he hopped over the boundary rope. And I picked Ben Stokes's claw catch from the very first game of the tournament because seriously, why wouldn't I? Thank you to everyone who voted. What about drop of the World Cup? Because there were some absolutely spectacular drops Weren't in that World there? Cup, weren't there? 
Weren't they? What was your favourite? Um, Jason Roy's against Pakistan was that was a classic, <laughs> especially for him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking of Trent Bolt in the final. I mean, that was pivotal as it gets, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? And stepping on the rope. I mean, it wasn't technically a drop, was it? He stood on the well, sponge. Well, yeah, technically it was. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, afraid so. I mean, it, you know, there was the, there was a look of absolute. It, it's the Lord Slope doing its thing. He had backpedalling downhill. He thought he had another meter to go. He was just so nonchalantly put that foot back, like he knew where exactly where he was, and then nearly jumped out of his skin when he realised he hit the cushion. So that, that oh, wins no, no, it for sorry, me. Sorry, yeah. no, I'm not allowed to laugh at anything to do with the uh, World Cup final because people oh, are still I, I, mourning. Do you think the England players are going to send him a little cut of all the endorsement contracts they get as World Cup winners now? They'll just send Trent Bolt a little you know, 2% of their earnings from it. <laughs> the winner of our catch of the World Cup tournament turns out to be Ben Stokes. And that's only going to increase his chances of winning Kiwi of the Year. But we'll talk more about that after the break. When Utoxeter Cricket Club had to leave their beloved grounds of 60 years, it looked like it might be the end for the area's only club. Enter NatWest Cricket Force, an initiative created to support community clubs across the country. They help them make a new home in a former cricket ground, breathing new life into the space and the team. Why? Because NatWest believes cricket should be easy for everyone to play. It's paired up with the Guardian Labs to tell more stories about experiences like these. Read them at theguardian.com forward slash natwest dash cricket. This message was paid for by NatWest. This is the spin from The Guardian. My guests today are Mark Butcher, Barry Glendenning and Andy Zaltzman. And Andy, I would just like to point out that you had, I think, one day off during the World Cup and I <laughs> ran into you on your day off at Lords. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I covered 31 games for the BBC and yeah, I absolutely loved it. But I, had, uh, I re- was recording my non-cricket podcast and I had a couple of hours before I have to go and pick the kids up from school. And I thought it'd be really nice to just watch two hours of cricket <laughs> without having to look up 85 different statistics and write things in coloured pens. So, and did you enjoy it? Well, I, I did enjoy the cricket, and but it rammed home to me how incredibly irritating all the music is. That game was the Pakistan-Bangladesh game at Lords, which had sort of turned into a bit of a slightly anticlimactic dead game due to the net run rate rule. And there was a moment Shaheen Afridi bowled out Tamim Iqbal, and you got half a second of the Pakistan fans going nuts. Then some idiot presses a button, music blares out, <laughs> then you get the guitarist, I edited out a word there, um, <laughs> coming on for like a 90-second guitar solo, he ends, and then everyone's silent. So any kind of atmosphere is absolutely crushed. There was a moment in the final when Ben Stokes hit three twos in a row and there was this kind of swell of noise and, it, and excitement. You thought, oh, this is actual atmosphere here because he hadn't hit a four. So there was actual crowd reaction. It's one of the things that annoys me most no, about cricket, about sport. Green. <laughs> I've been banging on about this for ages. Do you think, is it football's fault? Shall we blame Barry? I completely agree with Andy. That was a big bugbear of mine during the Cricket World Cup, the music. And I hate goal music in football. Just trying to create an atmosphere when there is no need. Just let the crowd 
create their own atmosphere. And, you know. What is so illogical about it? And this is true of gold music in football, music when there's a try in rugby. The music only comes on in cricket when there are fours and wickets, other than the every over, because what happens if the crowd has 30 seconds to have a chat or make its own noise? Who knows what would happen? I think the Soviets would invade. I think that's the logic. Um, but... But they only I mean, maybe use it's it. their idea. <laughs> it's possible. Putin has hacked into. Yeah, but it's only used at the most exciting moments when it's least needed. Fours, sixes, and wickets. Honestly, so well, something it, must it should be, be played every time there's a good defensive block. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Just maybe a little bit of chamber music or something for a maiden. Here are some other things that have caught our eye this week. It's more than a week since England won the World Cup. The day after the final, the England team paraded the trophy at the Oval in front of hundreds of schoolchildren and fans who filled the pavilion to see the winning team. The Queen issued a statement to say how thrilled she was and Royal Mail unveiled their celebratory post boxes. As for the team, they went to Downing Street for a reception in the Rose Garden and the trophy has since been seen at Lords and the Riverside in Durham. But why hasn't there been an open-top bus tour for our World Cup winners? Barry, you'd have loved to have seen that, wouldn't you? Um, I'm not convinced it would have been a good idea. I'm not so sure it would have been very well attended <laughs> because I'm pretty confident that huge swathes of the population didn't know the Cricket World Cup was on. Well, you knew it was on. I knew it was on. And you're not a classic cricket fan. I knew it was on. I take an interest in cricket and I have Sky. A lot of people don't. (laughs) And they couldn't watch any of it. So, yeah, I'm I'm not so sure it would have been particularly well attended. I wouldn't begrudge anyone uh, an open-top bus parade. But, you know, if it went... Anyone? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You say everyone deserves an open-top bus parade. Assuming that, you know, if they have won a World oh, okay. Cup. Oh, right, fair enough. Would you rather have one that isn't very well attended or not have one at all? I'm, I'm, that's a fair point. I mean, officially, the ECB gave the reason that there wasn't enough time in between the World Cup and the Ashes to hold a parade. They might have been more worried about Trafalgar Square looking a little bit empty. I don't think that would have been the case. I think there would have no, been a, bit, a big turnout. I think that, you know, it got a good, good audience in it when it was on the final was... Free at, to air and at Trafalgar Square, they, they were. I mean, yeah, there were a few left left there from the day before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's necessary to be honest yeah. with you. I think the event, the occasion, the game kind of spoke for itself. I'm not saying that obviously England have never won a World Cup before, so it is, it is special. But I don't know. I don't know if you need to do this every single time no. at, at a major sporting event. Um, has something good happen? I think there's a philosophical inconsistency of having open top bus parades only when you win. Because I think if you have it when you win, you should have it when you lose for the team to be booed through the streets <laughs> as well. Where were the open-top bus parades after England's last six World Cup campaigns <laughs> for us to vent our spleen as England fans? Uh, I think we should add that the Oval presentation was actually rather lovely because of the school children who I think were actually already in the ground in order to play a game. I don't think they were brought in specifically to mm. look at the World Cup. No, I got a, I was sort of privy to an email from the uh, the, the chief exec of uh, at the Oval saying that they'd been requested if they would host this thing the day you know that it happened that night Sunday night they, they had a request could we put on or host the England team down there and of course they just made everything ready and and then the whole thing came together I mean it's really nice I think the spontaneity of something like that if you sort of start thinking okay well, we're going to do an open top bus parade maybe when are we going to do it or two Fridays after the work or whatever it is the reason that the thing went off so well 
um, after winning the Ashes at the Oval in 2005 was not obviously the 19 years between <laughs> between having done it, beating the best side in the world, the best, uh, perhaps the best five match series that's ever been seen in this country anyway. And also the fact that it was spontaneous, you know, it happened. Everybody was delighted to see it the very next day out. They went, the boys were all still hammered and stuff. I think if you start pre-planning these things, it kind of loses all of its sort of vim and vigour. I would add, though, that the boys were still fairly hammered for the open-top bus parade in 2005. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they hadn't been asleep. No, not for, they, they wandered straight into it. I mean, they, it was nothing to do with them. They were told what to do and where to be and what to be wearing. Somebody dressed them and, and out they went because uh, most of them were not in any fit state to be in public at all. Well, this team supposedly behaved much better at Downing Street than the 05 team. Hmm. Well, didn't uh, Freddie Flintoff draw something obscene on a, a sleeping Steve Harrison's That's forehead. Correct. A word. Oh, a word. Was it was it? a word. It was a rude word. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's spontaneity for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's pants. Uh, ben Stokes is currently favourite to win the BBC's Sports Personality of the Year, but he's also getting nominations for an altogether more surprising award, New Zealander of the Year. Christchurch-born Stokes is being nominated by members of the public, with the Chief Judge Cameron Bennett saying some Kiwis clearly think they can still claim him. The Silver Ferns have just won the netball, the All Blacks have a Rugby World Cup to come and Kane Williamson won player of the Cricket World Cup. So does New Zealand have the collective sense of humour to actually give this title to Ben Stokes, do we think? Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they, they took their, their defeat at the hands of a mixture of bad luck and injustice with almost irritating Good humour. <laughs> yes. Mm. Yeah. It's difficult to imagine their rugby players being as equanimous. Oh, they still haven't stopped going on about that forward pass in 2007 <laughs> in, the, in the rugby, have they? Even uh, after winning two more since then. Jimmy yes, Anderson yeah. said, didn't he, in the last week that he believed that Ben Stokes might have actually asked the umpires to take those runs off. But the umpires have since said that, no, they received no such request. So I'm not sure whether Ben Stokes really is getting that New Zealander of the Year award. <laughs> The T20 Blast started at the end of last week and some of the stars of the World Cup are hanging around to entertain us a bit longer. Aaron Finch, Glenn Maxwell, Imran Tahir, Mohamed Amir, Rashid Khan and Alex Carey are all in action as well as Middlesex's star signing A.B. de Villiers who hit 88 from 43 balls in their win over Essex at Lords on the opening night. The grounds have been full, Lords was a sellout, there are kids everywhere getting their mini-bats signed by their favourite players. And at the same time, marketing for the 100 has begun. Some of those team names have been tweaked. Some of the coaches have been hired. Technically, the contracts still haven't been signed yet by the counties. So the question is, do we need T20 and the 100? Nope. <laughs> that was quick. Uh, I, I, I'm also going with no. Barry, as somebody who is probably the kind of fan we are trying to draw in to English cricket with the 100, how do you feel about there being two different formats? Are you finding this confusing? I don't find it confusing. I just think it's ridiculous. I've yet to hear anyone say a good word about the 100, and I don't really see the need for it. I've got a, a number of problems with the 100. Cricket is the only sport that competes against itself. Or you know, I can't think of any other sport that is, that, that is competing against itself. And what it's producing now is something that is only slightly different from something that is already working incredibly well. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't yeah. see any need for it. And also, in terms of attracting new fans to the sport, generally the way people get into it is by having cricket explained to them by someone who already loves it. 
the difficulty you're going to have with the hundred, I think, is if you are a fan. If I'm sitting down with with my my well, my kids already like cricket because I've been sitting down with them literally since birth. But <laughs> in my son's case, he was born with TMS on the radio. Um, but um, and my is that di- true? That is true. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Yeah. But uh, he was I, well. I, I delivered him at home unplanned, but I'd, I hadn't got around to switching the radio off. It was England v uh, India. What, what was happening right at delivery. the time? England, England was slowly <laughs> subsiding to defeat in the Chennai Test of 2008. Anyway. <laughs> great, great way to enter the world. It's going to be difficult for fans of cricket to explain to kids who don't know about it or people who aren't fans of cricket why this game is so brilliant when they're being forced to explain a version of cricket that no one knows anything about yet. Mm. So you can't really explain why are they doing this, this or this because no one really knows. And, and T20s established i think philosophically it's i mean i don't know about the the logistics of the tv coverage i think is that that's a different matter i don't know what happened there in terms of tv wanting a, a shorter a shorter game but there's this sort of assumption that cricket's almost too complicated to explain i think that's a deeply flawed assumption that essentially at its basis cricket is quite a simple game it's a guy with a ball and a guy with a bat and there's levels of complexity that you soak up over time. But you don't need to know that. I've taken my kids with friends of theirs who've never been to cricket to T20 games, and it is very simple to explain. And you can enjoy T20 without knowing that that a certain batsman is vulnerable to the third slower ball he faces if it's bowled with an off-cut <laughs> technique or whatever. You don't need to know that. Is so that what, the kind what? of analysis that you want from the game, Barry? Well, Andy's dead right. I mean, my introduction to cricket came when I wandered into the living room at home as, as a kid and... Kurtley Ambrose was at the time when he was just skittling Graham Hick for fun. And I just found it, you know, enormous man with the flaring nostrils steaming in and chucking this ball at these succession of cowering blokes at the other end. I found it quite fascinating. Mm. And I kind of Violence, you say, it's, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> I asked my dad, what, you know, what, what's going on here? And he sort of like, oh, well do you really want to go there? And I went, yeah, yeah, to explain it to me. So he started explaining the basics and, and that's how I got into cricket. There's lots of stuff I didn't know. There's lots of stuff I still don't know, but I still like watching it. One of the most sort of fundamental things about the game of cricket, right, I think that virtually anybody, even people who have no interest in it whatsoever, know that there are six balls and an over. It's like one of those things that you just yeah. know. All of a sudden, that's too complicated. That's gone. I don't understand what, what, how we're making things simpler by inventing something, <laughs> you know, well, by also, taking away the things that people already people know. People are about going the game. to struggle when they come back from the hundred, or when they graduate from the hundred mm. to other forms of cricket, when there suddenly are six balls in and over. Yeah, I'm still not 100 percent convinced that this is going to happen. You know, there's rumblings going on. Counties have all of a sudden had a little bit of think about, you know, what might be happening, um, and, and, and perhaps not quite as enthusiastic as they were. But you're going to have a, a, the 50-over competition, which, granted, doesn't attract an enormous amount of people outside of the sort of the hardcore cricket fans. World champions at it, and it disappears. It becomes a, a, an irrelevant a, a development competition or something. So all of the best white ball cricketers are not going to be playing in the 50-over comp that we are now world champions of. I'll say that again. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so it, it suddenly becomes an irrelevant thing. We've just spent the last four-year cycle doing absolutely everything we possibly could, throwing everything at this 50-over team so that we could become world champions in a home World Cup. And now we're just saying it's not important anymore. For the purposes that it's, you know, it's supposed to be too complicated to understand, they've made something more complicated, less easy to understand and less easy to explain to people who don't... Well- don't know about it. So, and, and also, I think T20 is already at the absolute limit for cricket of where the risk to reward in batting is, is interesting, where wickets still matter. I don't think you can make cricket any shorter 
and it still have any interest in, in terms of the, the way the narrative is shaped by wickets. Before we go, I need your help on one more thing. It was Jason Roy's birthday yesterday and we forgot to get him anything. So do you have any gift ideas for England's opener? Well, it's hard to know what to get a man who's just won a World Cup and been picked for his first Test match. So, Something to clean his medal with, maybe. Some sort of gold polish. Possibly. Maybe a montage of all the great Surrey openers who've, uh, who've opened for England. We have a little you know, Butch and Alex Stewart, Jack Hobbs, all that lot. I would take Jason on a, an epic pub crawl on Tuesday evening <laughs> and to help him celebrate his birthday I'm sure uh, lots of my compatriots would, would come along and join in we could ply him with loads and loads and loads of booze and see how he gets on the next day I think that's risky tactically I'm certainly at village cricket I found hangovers really helped batting oh really if you get through the tricky first 10 minutes, <laughs> you are focusing on that. I don't know if you ever tried this in test cricket, but maybe it didn't quite work quite so well. The ball's coming at 90 miles an hour compared with 30. Uh, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm about the game long enough to say that I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was often quite successful. Focuses the mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've gone for a copy of... Now playing the new album by Mark Butcher, which you can get from markbutchermusic.com. That's, yeah, I'll send him one of those. Jason, it's in the post. Well, actually, you can afford to buy one now, can't you? (laughs) (laughs) It's time to say goodbye to my guests. Andy Zeltzman, who you can hear on the Unbelievable Ashes podcast alongside spin favourite Felicity Ward. Mark Butcher, who you can see arguing with Rob Key on Sky's 2020 (laughs) (laughs) coverage. Uh, And touring his album later this year. Barry Glendenning, who will be back with the Football Weekly team just as soon as the football break is over in about 30 minutes from now. Our next episode will be our Men's Ashes preview. We'll be assembling a panel of Australian and English experts to have their say on the next part of this amazing summer of cricket, including Vic Marks, who's currently taking a well-deserved break. Enjoy your holiday, Vic. If there's something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can get in touch with us anytime. Tweet me at m underscore john or email us thespin at theguardian.com. And until later, goodbye. The Spin is supported by NatWest. To find out about how NatWest is making it easier for everyone to get involved in cricket, search NatWest Cricket.